0: The scripture today is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him and they fell down and worshiped him then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way this is god's word
1: amen thank you vicky so good morning It's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, If you're wondering why in the world I'd be wearing a jacket this morning, it is cold, okay? I get like two Sundays a year where Florida Bear's wearing something like this. Uh, But it's Epiphany Sunday. If you don't know what that is, you can see it's on the screen behind me. It is the uh, Sunday of the year, the first Sunday of of the year, when the church has historically commemorated uh, this story, the visit of the Magi to the child, uh, Jesus, uh, probably a year and a half to two years after uh, he was born, It is also the day that we've set apart where we're going to ordain a new pastor in our church, John Egan, and so whenever we do that, we get a little spiffed up, okay? So, uh, and, but, I, but I chose this text for both of those reasons. It is a perfect complement to the nativity story, which we are, are, you know, typically looking at during the Christmas season. And though it is grouped with the other material, the scholars tell us it probably took place sometime later. So, the wise men, I hate to break it to you, but there's a lot that we get wrong about the wise men and the way we typically do our nativity scenes and that sort of thing. They probably weren't there at the birth of Jesus, uh, they were there much later. And so, they represent the future of Jesus' reign, not necessarily the beginning. And so, the scene reminds us that though the kingdom come in Jesus has small beginnings, Its future is is very big, like the mustard seed in the parable that Jesus told, the seed that is the smallest of all the seeds but grows and eventually becomes larger than all the other plants. These magi bowing down before the toddler king is a preview of the future when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ and he will reign over everything. And he will put... His foot on every enemy, even death, and the old will pass away and be no more, and the new will come. That is, that is his future. That is our future. And so this text is the crescendo of the Christmas story. And so what a great opportunity to look at it together this morning. But let me say this is also a great text for an ordination service. And here's what I want us to see. I'm just going to talk briefly this morning because we have other things we want to get to. But I want you to see these three things, and they're just the three points in the outline that I gave to you in your worship folder. We want to see the, uh, the magi, just looking What at who are these men, what's the significance of them. Secondly, we want to take a broader look at this text and say, what does it really call us to? What is the mission that we're called into because of what's going on here in, in Matthew chapter 2? And then lastly, in the exact way that Jesus comes, we see that there's a very clear and specific motivation. So... Three M's there, maybe you'll remember the Magi, the mission, and the motivation from this text uh, as we just ponder for a few minutes together. So first, follow with me if you would. Uh, let's look at these Magi, these wise men, the three kings of Orient are as we sing about. Call them what you want. Uh, it's really unclear actually to us exactly what role they had. They were, probably the best way to describe them as they were cultural elites. They were rulers of some kind, probably from the land of Persia. They most likely traveled months following the astrological sign to come and worship, uh, verse 2, the king of the Jews. But not because he was the king of the Jews. See, that's the point. Here you have, think about this, you have pagan Gentile rulers, kings, bowing down before the one born king of the Jews because he's actually more than just king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. The king to whom all the other kings of the earth owe obedience and worship. So this scene is more than just history it's actually prophecy or you could even say it is a parable in some ways what we see here. So remember over the last uh, the weeks of Advent we've been talking about this great reversal that would take place as Isaiah the prophet promised that darkness would turn to light if you remember and sadness would become joy and uh, oppression and violence would give way to righteousness and peace and we said how would all of that happen? And the answer in Isaiah chapter 9 and throughout the Bible is that it would be the king. The king that would come and it would be his power and his goodness that would change the world. And so the hope that Israel's prophets had for the world was embodied in the king who would ascend to David's throne and rule over not just Israel, but from Israel, rule over the whole world. And so we read in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. So Israel's king was destined, according to the prophet, to rule the world. Now this becomes a matter of misplaced nationalistic... Here we go. Nationalistic pride and idolatry. The point, rather, was that the reign of Israel's king would be symbolic of the reign of Israel's God, that Yahweh was not just a tribal deity. He, in fact, is the creator of all, the true God, the God of all the peoples. And through the king, God himself would subdue and secure the worship of the nations for himself. And so psalm 72 for example if you're familiar with that scripture if you have a bible and you want to turn there uh, you, you could or, or at least look there later you'll see it's a, it's a messianic psalm and it says about the king of israel here are the words of the psalmist about israel's king but it's a prophetic messianic psalm so it has reference to the ultimate king the lord jesus himself it says may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth and may desert tribes bow down to him May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute, and may the kings of Seba and Sheba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. And that was the prophetic hope, and it's exactly what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 2. And so Jesus is being presented to us in this story as more than just a moral philosopher. He is the king, and if he is the king, then he is your king, and he is my king. You with me? It's interesting. Interestingly, Herod in the story intuits the implications of this truth better than we do most times. There's a contrast intentionally by Matthew here in the text between Herod's response to this news and the Magi's response to the news. Herod, who is the sitting king of the Jews, but not a true son of David, because he was given the throne by Rome because. I mean, in truth, his family was wealthy and they were the highest bidder and it was just an auction Rome put on and whoever promised the most support and money got the throne. Herod, who is the sitting king but not a true son, he knew, he knew enough prophecy that if, you know, if the king had come, the king that Isaiah had talked about, the king that the Old Testament looked forward to, if that king indeed had come, then it for sure meant the end of his reign. Which is why he reacted the way he did. You'll see verse 1, we're told that all of this took place in the days of Herod the king. It's more than just a timestamp; stamp. It sets the tone for the rest of the story. Uh, if you were a, a, you know, a Jewish person at that time, uh, it would have, it would have created this visceral reaction inside of you because the people hated him. They saw him as a sellout to Rome, and his reign was marked by cruelty and oppression and extravagance, and he reinforced and enforced Roman occupation of the land. And so the people clearly wanted another king. They were looking for the true king. And it wasn't Herod. And they knew it, and he knew it. And so when news started started circulating that Messiah had been born, and, you know, the superstitions of the day, and a bright star began to shine in the sky, and Persians... From halfway across the world, show up at your palace seeking the one born, the rightful king of the Jews, a true son of David. You get it, right? It says Herod was what? Troubled. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. This is not good. This is not going to end well with me. But not only him, verse 3 says, not only Herod, but all of Jerusalem, in fact, with him was troubled. And that word describes an inner storm or a disquiet. And I think that's right. In truth, that's how we... All should feel, it's how he should have felt, and it's how you and I should feel too, to some degree. And I've told you over and over again, you know, my problem with, and I, just as a pastor, how hard it is sometimes in that Christmas season, because what Christmas feels like these days, it's so cozy, right? And it really shouldn't be. It should be an upsetting. It should be disquieting, as it was for Herod, because it is a clash of kingdoms. And so when Herod learned that the Magi had tricked him, he flew into a rage. If you go on in chapter 2, you might know the story. He was so afraid and so threatened by this, the news of this new king that he ordered the mass murder of every male child in Bethlehem under the age of 2. He would, risk, he would not risk losing his throne to any potential rival, and that too is prophecy. In Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 2, in fact, it says that the nations rage and the kings of the earth plot against the Lord and his anointed, taking war counsel with one another to overthrow him and to keep their place of power and control in the world. And that psalm is a prophetic, you know, word, but it is also a picture of our hearts, your heart and my heart. And Herod is a picture of the way our hearts most naturally respond to the reality of the king's coming if we truly understand its implications. And here they are. Here, Here are the implications. If Jesus is king, then guess who's not? I'm not you're not if he really is king then we owe him everything and he owes us nothing if he really is king then we bow to him he doesn't bow to us if he really is king then we don't command him he commands us and the bible says that the human heart hates that truth because we are rebels. And the stories we're reading in Genesis right now in our community Bible reading teach us that sin is a desire to occupy God's throne, to be at the control panel of the universe. That's what our hearts most want. And here we, like Herod, are confronted and reminded of the reality that we are not. And that is troubling to our hearts. Now, of course, the wise men, in contrast, they are the example of how we should all respond To the news of this king and so if you're here and you don't know him if you're here and you're not a christian here's my advice to you take note of the lesson of this of this text if you're here and you don't know him but you think you might want to then stop whatever you're doing and go and search for him until you find him no matter how long it takes no matter how hard you have to look nothing else matters and when you find him fall on your face before him and give him whatever time and talent and treasures you have for him to use at his disposal But here's what I want you to see. There is no middle ground. It's either Herod or the wise men. Those are the only two rational responses to the news of the king's coming. Rage against him because you understand the implications for your own life. Or bow before him because, again, you understand the implications of, for your life. But either way, you acknowledge the reality of the, who the Bible claims him to be. But the irony is, is there's a third group here in the text and they kind of go unnoticed we probably you probably just flipped right over them as we read along and they're the scribes and the pharisees in verses five through seven who answer herod's questions about where the bible prophesies messiah to be born so these wise men have traveled for months and finally make it to jerusalem and then on to bethlehem but these religious leaders the people in charge of teaching the bible to the people and of leading them spiritually this religious leaders won't go five miles it's five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They won't, go, they won't go five miles to investigate and see if the report, what if the reports are true? But what comes from the text is that they, they answer the question theologically, they know the answers, but there's just an incredible amount of apathy and indifference. And here I think is the lesson. And the lesson is that the person who hates Jesus because of the claims the Bible makes about who he is and the person who bows before him and give him everything, those are the two, the two true responses, but the absurd thing, the absurd thing, the irrational thing is to shrug with indifference. The story doesn't let you do that. Don't do that. Make sure you don't do that. That's what we see in the magi. Now secondly. secondly, we also see that there's a mission. The story gives us a mission. So though the scene is prophecy fulfilled, it is not ultimate prophecy. The kingdoms of this world are not yet the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. There are enemies yet to be put under his feet, as we are well aware. There are territories that remain unconquered still. And so let's consider Matthew 2 through the wide-angle lens for a minute, with particular focus on Romans 10. I snuck Romans 10 in there because I really wanted that. This is really a, a, a sermon about Matthew 2 and Romans 10, if you would allow me, okay? and So the Magi's visit and worship teach us another important lesson, and that is that the Jewish... Messiah is the savior of Jews and non-Jews. Now that should get a huge amen from the room. You know why? Because about 95% of you are non-Jews. That's good news for us. It may not land on us the way that it should because we're for the most part Gentile, but its significance cannot be overstated. God has designs on the whole world. He loves a worldwide reputation. He wants and he's committed with all of his heart. He's committed for the whole world to join the worship of his people. That's why in Revelation, you see it's every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the earth gathered around his throne. And so the narrative, the narrative tension of the story of early Christianity was whether the church would give up its Jewishness and embrace the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles and then actually go into the world as Jesus had commanded them to make disciples of all people as John taught us last week. Now, it's been that way for 2,000 years. It's still the narrative tension for the church, Big C. It's the narrative tension for this church. Will we keep going into the world with the good news of Jesus as we've been commanded? It's interesting. Epiphany, which I told you is always celebrated, it's January 6th. If you know the 12 days of Christmas, on the first day of Christmas, right? It marks the season of Christmas that there are 12 days between Christmas on December 25th and Epiphany on on January 6th, Epiphany was actually celebrated by Christians for centuries before Christmas was. And that's fascinating to me. But it also makes a lot of sense that the church of previous centuries chose to commemorate this event as its charter, not Christmas. And it seems that they understood better than we do that, as Emil Brunner has said, that the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. Without mission, there is no church. Without the command to take the gospel to the nations, there's no reason for us to gather here or even exist. That's what we're here for. And so that's why I wanna, I wanna in light of that, that really is what this story is setting up. In light of that, I want you to, if you look in your worship folder at the Assurance of pardon in that Romans 10 passage, I want you to see that this is the argument that Romans 10 is trying to make to us about the, the impulse to go out, to be, to be moved out by the spirit of God into the world as his people. And so as I said, If you'll forgive me, this is really a sermon on Matthew 2 and Romans 10. That doesn't mean I'll be any longer. It just means that's where we're going to look for a minute, okay? But here's the argument that Romans 10 is making in light of this. Four things, just as bullet points. First, it says in verse 14 that salvation is believing. Salvation is believing, not doing. Christianity is not a moral code. It's a message. Christianity is gospel. And so let's be clear about that. If you are here and you want to become a Christian, you don't have to do anything. In fact, the only requirement is to know there's nothing you can do and then call out to God for help. That's it. Verse 13, if you see it there, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the name of the Lord refers to what God is like, his being and his character. And so to call upon his name means that your confidence and hope, that where you draw your strength from is who God is and what he has done, and what he has promised to do and not what kind of person you are or your personal resume. The gospel is that God saves in Jesus if you believe. And believing is non-doing. Salvation is believing. Secondly, faith then comes from hearing. If if the gospel is a message and not a moral code, then it has to be heard in order for it to be believed. So if the world is gonna come under the reign of Jesus, there's a message that has to be heard and believed. Well, how are people going to hear? Not just in the 1040 window, but here, where 85% of our county doesn't attend church regularly. How are they going to hear? Well, that's the third thing. The gospel must be preached. Verse 14. And that's evangelism. We are sent into the world. It can't just happen in church. Eight out of ten people don't come to church. Right? Eight out of ten people will never come into a room like this and listen to some goober like me talk about these things. And so we have to go to them with the gospel message, and that's the last thing. If salvation is believing, and if faith comes from hearing, and if the gospel must be preached, then preachers must be sent. You with me? And by the way, that's all of us, not just me, not just the professional preachers, okay? There's a gift of preaching, and those with the gift of preaching should preach, but every Christian is a preacher, Thank you, somebody. Thank you, Timo. Timo had to come all the way from Lakeland to give me that encouragement. Every Christian is a preacher. There's a gift of mercy, but every Christian should be merciful. So me doing this doesn't get you off the hook. That's a real danger. John doing this doesn't get you off the hook. We are all sent. And so wherever you are, whatever neighborhood you live in, whatever job you work at, whatever school you go to, kids, you've been sent there. You're there for a purpose because the people who are there are are, are on God's heart. And do you want to know how I know that the people where you are are on God's heart? Because you're there. And he sent you there. And he sent you there because those people, he loves them and you are to be the herald of the gospel to them. But this is also why we send preachers like John who've been trained and who have the particular gift of preaching like the early church when they set apart missionaries and laid hands on them and sent them and that's what we're going to do today in just a minute so John Piper said about this this kind of mission thing he said there's only really uh, there are three options you're either number one a radical goer or number two you're a radical sender or three the only other option is you're disobedient so as we send John Pray that he will be a radical goer. And some of you pray about being radical goers with him. Pray that he will feel, he will go feeling the weight of souls. And as we send him, let's be radical senders. I mean, you can be sacrificial in your going, you can be sacrificial in your sending, but you have to be sacrificial either way. And I'll be honest, let me just just stay in the union for about one minute here. For 10 years, we've been radical senders Send, sending Tony and Amber Ellswick to Nicaragua, sending Brad Beating to the front lines for the fight for justice in our city with Heart for Winter Haven, sending Jeff Skipper and Redeemer Southwest a number of years ago, and, and hopefully soon sending another group with John and Katie. We have chosen not to measure our success by the people and the programs we have here, but by our capacity to sin. We're a small church. We'll continue to be a small church with a big footprint, Lord willing, locally and globally, because we radically sinned. And I'll be honest, we're feeling this a bit here at the end of 2018. We'll report more on that in the coming weeks. But we are so intent on our sending that we, you, you might make the argument we've neglected the needs here at times, thus grace abounding and, and some of the things. But listen, I'm, I'm proud of that. It's a matter of concern, but I'm proud of it because a successful church by biblical standards acts in a way that threatens the well-being of the organization by depleting resources for the sake of the mission. And if the church ever begins to act in self-preserving ways, it's dead. It's just a matter of time. Only 20% of churches in America are growing. Only 1%, only 1% is growing through evangelism. There are 100 or so churches in Winter Haven. Can we be the one? I want to be the one. And that's why I want to keep planting churches. I know, I've heard from you. It feels like all we ever talk about is church planting, church planting, church planting. And it's because it's the best strategy for reaching non-Christian people, and that's why we're here. I'm losing my microphone again. Satan. <laughs> lastly, Lastly, as we consider this great work, there's the motivation as well. So thirdly, the story reminds us of the right motivation. Now make no mistake, we're talking about global domination, okay? This is global domination. You with me? Remember the old pinky in the brain? Hey, brain, what are we going to do today? Same thing we do every day, pinky, try to take over the world. That is what we're talking about. But Christians have used that theology to do some pretty awful things. Forced conversion of native peoples in the Americas and the Crusades. I mean, we can make a long list. And that's why it's so, so important to point out how this story in Matthew 2 shows that Jesus is a different kind of king altogether. He gives us a different kind of motivation for this mission that he calls us to. And we see this in the way his time on the earth began. But also in the way that it's foreshadowed that it would end here in this text, both are alluded to. And so look, just back in uh, Matthew 6, Matthew 2 for just a minute. Look at the beginnings. Jesus we're told here was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. And this comes as a surprise to the people in the text and, and maybe even a surprise to us as we read it. because the magi come first to Jerusalem, because of course, that was the capital. Uh, that was where you know, the government was, it was where the palace was, and so where would you expect the king to be born? Well, of course, you know, in the pal- palace, in the seat of power, and, and you know, people get tripped up by the star. We, we know actually, it's fascinating, that there was a conjunction of two plant- planets at the time of Jesus' birth that have, would have produced the bright star in the sky, so it wasn't, you got to get out of your mind like the star was hanging out in the sky just above the manger where Jesus was born, okay? I mean, it actually was a, you know, an astrological thing going on. But you have that. You have everybody in the world seeing this. And because of you know, some of the astrological you know, religions of the day, wondering what it meant. At the same time, it's, very, it's known to history that there was a rumor going all over the world about a king that would, was going to be born in Judea. The Magi put those two things together and came to Jerusalem because that's where they expected to find the king that the prophecy foretold now the surprise was that when they got there he wasn't there and they consulted the people who know the bible and they said no he's going to be born in bethlehem instead i mean in the suburbs in relative obscurity and so matthew brings in the micah five prophecy there in verses five and six to make this point that though clearly the bible talks about messiah Coming from Bethlehem, it's still a surprise because it's such a small place and it happens in such a small way, doesn't it? I mean, shepherds instead of attendants and sheep and manure in the place, and I mean, you know, all the things that we imagine and capture, you know, around Christmas time, that it is just a strange way for the God of heaven to enter the world. You with me? Such a small thing for such a big thing. But it's his way. And we know it's his way because we know the end of the story. There's a surprise at the beginning, but there's also a surprise at the end of his life too, isn't there? And no one no one involved in, this, in these scenes in the beginning parts of the Gospels would have imagined the way it would end, though it is hinted at in the text. Now, I don't want to make too much of the gifts of the Magi that they bring because scholars are divided about the significance of this, but I do think there's something here. So if you see we 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 imagine three kings we don't know that there were just three kings there were three gifts and so that's where the three kings come from but there could have been many more there could have been one who was a very generous person who gave you know all these gifts but there are three gifts you'll see there frank gold frankincense and myrrh and uh... they are kingly gifts they're very expensive gifts that's what we can know for sure but they also i think intuit certain things because the gold that's given suggests that jesus is royalty it was the gift given to a king and frankincense, uh, frankincense was actually used as incense in worship services of the time, so it suggests that Jesus was, in fact, divine, that he was God, and we know that he, he was indeed. This was God himself breaking into the world, putting on human flesh and blood uh, in the person of Jesus. But then the myrrh, the myrrh was a perfume very clearly in that day that was used to embalm the dead. And so it's a strange gift, but it's a very, very expensive gift given to very wealthy people. Uh, But it suggests or foreshadows his passion that Jesus, this child, was actually born with a scent of death about him because he, in fact, came to die. That that would be his end. So the Jews were looking for a king that would come and gain a throne and through that throne rescue them from their political enemies Jesus did not come to earth to gain a throne. He left his throne. He did not come for glory or fame or power or wealth. He stripped himself of glory. He gave away his wealth. He became nothing, though he was the king. He did not seek a throne. He could have had one. Satan offered him a throne. The crowds offered him a throne. His best friend Peter offered him a throne. And time and time again, he said no to a throne because he came to say yes to the cross. Why? because it was the only way to save his people from their real enemies, not Rome, but sin and death. And so we see, not just here, but all throughout the Gospels, not the subjugation of his enemies through sheer force, but the way Jesus conquers the world is through sacrificial self-giving love. And that's the way he conquers our hearts too. He conquers us. He conquers us through Knowing his heart. You can bow before him and not rage before his authority if you know his heart and you see his heart and the fact that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, going all the way to die for you so that you might be reconciled to God through him. That's the way he conquers our heart. But here's the thing. It's the way we will win the world. The gospel advances through us through the same sacrificial self-giving love. That's the motivation. Not the subjugation of our enemies through sheer force and willpower. Now, let me apply this really quickly before we move on. Let me just say this to all of you first. What are you seeking? We're all seeking something. It's a good question to ask at the beginning of the year. This year, in 2019, what are you seeking? What are you following? What star is out in front of you that you have your sights on, and where is it leading you? But secondly, as you think about that, do think about this. Know that the closer you are, the closer you are to these things we're talking about, the harder it is. The more familiar you are with these stories, the harder it is to wonder. The harder it is to fall on your face and worship him. So ask God for a tender heart. Ask him to not make you hard-hearted. Ask him to not allow your eyes to become dull, closed and your hearts to become dull to spiritual things because they're so familiar to you. It was the people in Jerusalem that missed it. It was the people from the furthest reaches of the world who got it. The closer you are, the harder it is. And then a word to John. But really to all of us as we ordain him today john think about these wise men i pray that your ministry would kind of flow out of an experience like they had because here's here's seek him make the the aim of your life to know him because that's eternal life don't seek fame or the approval of people or success rejoice in him they were told in verse 10 rejoice exceedingly with great joy make joy in jesus the great aim of your life and let everything else you do and say flow from that worship him Prioritize your own private worship and live a life of worship. And in your ministry, lead others to worship through your life and through your ministry to them. And then lastly, tribute Him to all of us. I think what this text calls us to ultimately is to open whatever treasures we have and to give Him the very best of us as a gift because He's worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? So, Father, as we come now to this time as we respond to this word in these moments that we have here would you do just that, open our hearts, Uh, help us to fight against the impulse like Herod to just, just hate the news of your reign and the implications for our lives. Would you help us? Would you give us your spirit? Would you come and subdue our hearts to yourself by making known to us your great heart for us. May we see in the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, your great love. And may it so humble us and overwhelm us that we have no choice but just to fall down before him in worship. Because that is the response, the fitting response. It's the response that you deserve. But we need you to come and work in our hearts in that way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Now lift your hands and receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.